Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Among the beach-dirty wannabes of South Beach walked a serial killer, police said, who murdered Gianni Versace in the front steps of his Mediterranean mansion. Uh, Mr. Versace, of course, one of the world's top fashion designers, whose designs are famous uh, in all the big fashion centers, such as Paris, Rome, and London. This was a single white male who approached uh, Mr. Versace as he was uh, about to enter the gates. Andrew Cunanan is now a target himself. Who is he? Welcome to the final episode of Still Watching Versace, a podcast about the FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair critic Richard Lawson. This week we will be discussing season two, episode nine, the finale titled Alone, directed by Daniel Minahan and written as ever by Tom Rob Smith. Uh, and stay tuned at the end. We'll have a conversation with series producers Brad Simpson and Nina Jacobson. Uh, before we dive into the rundown of this final episode, I just want to talk to you, Richard, a little bit about the experience of you and I having watched the entire all eight episodes back in January and then having this long break where we rewatch episodes, but this long break and then finally getting the the last chapter in this story, uh, you and I watched it yesterday um monday i should say so what was that sort of delayed i don't know i don't even want to call it gratification since it's just such a sad episode but what was that delayed experience like for you uh it was funny i mean it was weird to like have a new thing but in this same world that we've been so immersed in for the past couple months um and you know i, I don't know how much expectation i had on it really because i we mostly knew where it was going to go right like um obviously there were some surprises in there but 
Uh, but yeah, I think it was satisfying ultimately. Uh, but like you said, sad and, and sad on sort of a multi-tiered level that we can get into. But um, I think the episode, um, you know, did the work that we've been wanting the show to do in terms of the macro and the micro, or the life of Andrew Kinnanen and then the broader sort of thematic scope of the show. I think it satisfied both of those two um, polls. What was the most surprising element for you? Was it Was it how much... Judith Light is featured in this finale. Yeah, I think that was the biggest surprise, you know, because I yeah. I just assumed that with a lot of these, you know, people that um, they were one off, you know, they were going to be in one episode and then and then they were done. But uh, a lot of people came back in this one, um, which was surprising. And um, I think other than that, like I guess I wasn't, I was mostly surprised by uh, how it ended in a way. I think it went went heavier on the Versace of it all rather than the Cunanan of it all uh, there at the very end, and in a way that I guess you know the that is the title of the show, but we've been so deep in with Cunin and, um, and sort of kind of forgotten about Versace. And so I was a little bit, um, it, it was unexpected that the show devoted that much kind of weight to, to him. Yeah. I don't know the timeline of shooting. I know that they were shooting sort of while they were promoting. So they were still working on the finale while they were promoting, uh, the first eight episodes. Um, so I don't quite know the timeline, but I almost wonder if, the heaviness of the Versace in this episode is a reaction to some disappointment uh, over the lack of Versace um, in the rest of the season. I, I, I have no way of knowing that, but um, I'll, I'll be curious to see if if Brad and Nina have any thoughts on that. But um, I agree with you. There was there was a lot of Versace, a lot of Mar- uh, Marilyn Miglin, and it almost felt like, um, you know, how at the end of a of a true story movie or, or miniseries, they sort of hit all the characters and be like, yeah. and ever since this happened, so-and-so is doing this and so, you know, so that felt like a, a sort of version of that, but incorporated into the story where we see Max Greenfield again, we get mentions of Jeff and David, like everyone sort of gets a grace note in this episode. Um, it's not a postscript. It's part of the finale, Liz Cote, all of them. So, um, all right. Should we dive into the, the episode itself? Yeah, one last time. One last time. This episode gets me on its side early by starting with one of my all-time favorite pieces of 80s music to be used in a TV show or movie, which is Vienna by Ultravox. Um, this is a really dramatic song that I every time it's used in a movie or TV show, it works on me. So um, we see basically Andrew wandering around. We see the murder again. We see the murder of Versace again. We see Andrew, like the cops after Andrew, and we see him break into a houseboat. And if you know the story of this, like him breaking into the houseboat, I knew that that's where he dies. So I was like, okay, well, this is it. Like right, right at the beginning of the episode, we see Andrew go into the home where he's going to die. So that's just an expedient uh, introduction of of his sort of final resting place. What did you think of this little bit of a rewind um, that we get at the top of the episode? I mean, it was probably necessary, for, you know, because it had been a while since um, we'd been in that time and place in 1997. Um, you know, and I think that the whole episode uh, is pretty good about ratcheting up tension in terms of the police closing in on him and all that. And then also Andrew's sort of descent into, you know, ultimately suicidal action like um but you know i i guess in a way i i was hoping for something a little bit less sort of thrillery and more pensive and i guess the the episode gets there eventually but this beginning kind of jarred me because it was it was more up in tone than i was think than i thought it was going to be or not in tone exactly but in in sort of tempo and, and mood sure it's like the manhunt's on and then and then you get this just really 
weird scene. I I think I felt the weirdness of the tone when um, Andrew was broken into this houseboat. Um, in real life, that houseboat was owned by like a weird Greek billionaire. So that's why there's like nine TVs in this houseboat and a projector. Um, and uh, pops some sh- like a he gets some champagne out and the cork pops off like sort of as he's watching coverage of himself on TV. And it's sort of this weird he's like laughing and then he wraps some sort of silk piece of cloth around himself goes up to a deck and sort of toasts himself as he watches the helicopter search for him in Miami which uh, we have like this episode is so is so challenged by the fact that we don't know at all what was going on in Andrew Cadenan's mind between when he shot Versace and, and when he shot himself and so uh it just has to make up the whole thing yeah. basically and this this sort of weird triumphant or celebration of his own coverage like i i would believe that andrew would be obsessed with his own coverage but the celebration of it felt a little jarring to me um yeah and i think it's interesting that there was this one final andrew surveying his you know supposed kingdom you know like we've seen him do this a lot you know stand on some sort of veranda or something with a view and, and kind of look out at, at at the world um you know and I, that that sort of triumphant feeling that he has uh i think that darren chris does a really good job of illustrating that and then doing this the the kind of quick curdling of that into him realizing that he has uh done his most sort of bold and known thing but it's also the last thing well the second to last thing um because he's really extinguished all of his options essentially yeah we we get there i think um the episode does a good job of like laying out all the avenues that andrew sort of tries to escape um and he's sort of blocked at every turn uh, really hemmed in and just keeps returning to that houseboat. So it it doesn't, it, you know, there the show's thesis is that Andrew wanted to escape, and there's some real life evidence to support that. Um, but there's also this quote, you know, I was rereading the last couple chapters of Maureen's book because I did make an error last week, or at least I said last week on the podcast I wasn't sure if Andrew went to the Philippines, and then we had dozens upon dozens yeah. of our listeners. <laughs> reassure me that he did. So I was like, oh, I should refresh these final chapters. Um, and there was this, this quote that really struck me from one of the, you know, um, the investigators on the scene told Maureen, uh, at the time he thought if he's still in Miami, he plans to die in Miami. So there's sort of this, um, it's unclear whether or not after killing Versace, this is the last thing that Andrew planned to do and then he planned to kill himself. Or uh, if he had bigger plans, I know that some authorities are worried he was going to try to escalate, um, which would mean someone like they thought someone like Elton John, or they also floated the idea of Barney Frank, like perhaps a, a gay politician, something like that. I don't know. But um, that's the the authorities are baffled, but the, but the show has to make a decision as to what Andrew was thinking and feeling and, and sort of this is what they decided is like some attempts at escape and then also just an obsession with his own coverage, which feels really uh, very accurate. Um, we also get a lot in this episode. We have throughout, but a lot, especially in this episode of mixture of real footage from the time. Mm hmm. And, um, you know, actors from the show. So we get like in the Versace covers of the Versace funeral. But at the start here, we get some uh, vintage Dan Rather, um, which is always, I don't know, a comfort for me to see. Yeah. Um, and then we get Judith Light. 
I wasn't yeah. expecting her in this episode at all, let alone multiple times. So um, what did you think of this scene where, where she sort of confronts the um, authorities who come to tell her to leave Miami for her own safety? Um, I mean, I think that some of Judith Slight's scenes in this episode feel a little bit like rehashes of stuff she did in her big episode. Um, you know, the sort of anger at the police, the 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 bearing up, you know, while on television talking about a sad thing. Um, she has one really great scene that we'll get to that I um I think really justifies bringing her back. Um, but yeah, I I mean it's always nice to have Judith Light there, and it's always you know it's good in this show that that, that they're closing out by reminding us of all the collateral damage of what this guy did, and you know because it with those most recent episodes, you know when we start to feel for Andrew a bit, um, or to at least understand why he uh, became the way he did, um, or rather became what he did, um, uh, you know a good it's an important reminder that. You know, he killed people and that really affected a lot of people. And, um, you know, what better vessel to deliver that than Judith Light? Yeah, the um, the last chapter of Maureen's book is called The Echoes or just Echoes. So it's about sort of she does that thing where she she checks in sort of with everyone um, at the end of her book. Um, there's no ev- uh, there's no evidence that I could find that Marilyn Miglin was in Miami at the time of the manhunt. This, I think, is just a, a trick of the show to get her on local QVC so that Andrew would be able to watch her, you know, on mm-hmm, TV. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's just a little bit of um, fictionalizing of her story. But um, I don't know. I was, I was excited to see her back and I agree with you that a little, it feels like a little bit of a retread, but then ultimately justified. We see Andrew changing into from his like all red outfit to a yellow and cream outfit. I I would love to talk to the costume designer at some point about these like monochromatic outfits that Andrew wears in this episode. Um Yeah, that and, that uh, yellow outfit is really <laughs> really something. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the the yellow polo and the cream slacks okay, but then he had like a matching uh, yellow baseball cap. It's a whole it's an interesting thing. Well, um, it's also like yeah. someone trying to like evade, you know, detection or whatever. It's 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 a pretty loud, you know, incognito outfit. Well, yeah, and right before that, he had been wearing all red, which was even yeah. more like jarring. So, um, but we see we see Andrew. This is like his first attempt to sort of leave. We see him steal a car. Uh, he's he's like confronts a roadblock. Is spotted by an older gentleman. Um, and uh, this is something that I didn't really realize, but it's only possible to leave Miami Beach by land via one causeway. So it's sort of easy to... There are two, I think. Oh, two. Sorry. Yeah. Two causeways. But by by causeway. So there is sort of easy to trap uh, someone via roadblock on that island. Um, and... Yeah. And, and this, this scene... Th- yeah. With this Go scene ahead. with this older man, you know... Uh, who's kind to him, maybe a little suspicious, maybe a little curious in some other way. Um, I thought that, and speaking of echoes, I thought that was a nice echo to kind of pay, uh, you know, homage or something, respect to to the, those sort of older men that he was involved with and, and you know, uh, killed one of them, but, you know, took advantage of others. And, uh, you know, just this, uh, this constant thing this show does, which is, showing moments of, of of when people extended kindness to Andrew, but he either couldn't take it or didn't want to take it. And, uh, you know, it just really, it uh, compounds the, the, the sadness of the, of the story, I think. Yeah. That didn't even occur to me that as an echo. Um, 
I was thinking more of, and I, I like it and I agree with it. I was thinking more like um, there were all these sightings of, and- of alleged sightings of Andrew that they have no confirmation whether or not it was, but here's something that could have happened. An old man, an older man could have seen Andrew um, and called him in, uh, you know, if, if they wanted to. Um, but it, we see Marianne watching um, her son on TV uh, and, and Joanne Adler sort of answering the door and the authorities are there. And she asks them, have you killed my son? Later, we see her sort of escorted out, besieged by press. And that of all, I mean, I think the show's depiction of, of Marianne Cunanan is the most um, ratcheting up the sympathy for a, a real life character who is maybe not um, that vulnerable because I felt so enormously protective of seeing Marianne sort of besieged by the cops and the press and all of that. When in real life, like Marianne gave a lot of interviews willingly and took a lot of money for it. So, you know, she wasn't quite the, the rabbity victim that she seems in this episode. Um, but still, I think, um, Andrew having to eventually face, you know, that his mother, is dealing with the fallout of what he's done uh, is an interesting note to play. Yeah. And as ever, she plays it well. As ever. But then we get to like, maybe actually my favorite performance of the episode. You texted me about this before um, I actually uh, watched this, the screener myself, uh, which is the surprising return of Max Greenfield as Ronnie. Do you want to talk about this speech and what struck you about it? Not just the surprising t- return, but Max Greenfield turning in, I think, the best performance in the episode and and possibly my favorite moment of the whole series Um it's you know he's in he's being interrogated you know they said you lied to us you actually knew him and he's like no i knew him by the name kurt you know he's sort of being evasive but and in a way you know he he's he's protecting one of his own even if one of his own did bad things and he gives this really interesting monologue that um that is maybe a little on the nose about how it addresses the larger themes of the show and and its idea about um gay lives and in and out of the closet and oppression and all that but but it comes as this kind of welcome, uh, at least it came for me as a kind of welcome, uh, you know, sort of tying the knot, you know, tying the bow um, on the whole series. And, you know, he says he's talking essentially about uh, how he understands Andrew and, and saying, you know, that Andrew wanted you to know about his pain. He's not hiding. He's trying to be seen. Um, and, you know, he says something along the lines of that most people, you know, they want gay people to just sort of fade away. And, and, and he says this line, he said, most of us oblige, uh, and, yes. you know, and, 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 you know, and he's clearly sick and, and he's, he's referring to AIDS and he's talking about the closet and he's talking about people just living on the margins. And that line, most of us oblige, it's, it's just delivered with this, this really grim, sad humor almost. And he's talking about himself. So he's almost seeing a strength in Andrew that he doesn't have. Um, and then he says something, uh, he says, he wanted you to, he wanted you to know about being born a lie. And, um, I don't know, there's something about this that reminds me of Belize, uh, in Angels in America, who, uh, Jeffrey Wright played in the HBO miniseries, who just has these kind of towering monologues about, um, I don't know, identity and, and all that. And it's just, yeah, I, I really like this scene. Did it work for you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I was prepped for it by your enthusiasm and comparison to Angels in America. So I was ready for it. Um, and it did not disappoint at all. Um, yeah. And, and sort of some of the things that Max Greenfield was doing, some of the physicality, um, that we kind of questioned in the first, the, his first appearance 
just really worked yeah. for me here. Yeah. It was really, really a completely captivating performance um, and moment. Um, and I think uh, giving, making um, Dasha Polenko's character, the detective, um, Laurie Wilder, Wild, Wider, um, his audience, I think uh, makes it even even better. You know, Darren Chris had mentioned to you that in the uh, original cut of the season, like there was a huge sort of plot line involving Dasha Polenko's character, how she was a lesbian, how maybe she was more uh, invested in figuring out what was going on with Andrew Cannon or, or able to understand um, than some of her cohorts on the force. And uh, he... Ronnie mentions that here. He goes, ah, the only Les on the force is something he says to her, which is like a, like a vestigial remain of a, of a storyline that was cut. Um, but I just, I just thought positioning them across the table from each other with her straight partner, like looming over her shoulder was just really, um, also well done. So. Yeah. 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 It, it's just, it's a, it's a scene that like, um, you know, as far as finales go, that this, one scene is able to encapsulate so much of the show with, you know, just one short monologue and, and an exchange between two characters. Um, you know, that's, 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 that's pretty good writing. I think, I think that, you know, if anyone was unclear about how big in theme the show was trying to be, I mean, the title is pretty, you know, grandiose, I guess too, but, um, here it is in the scene that they're saying, yes, we have been talking about this this whole time. Well, it really elevates it. I yeah, think. exactly. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, I, I just, the last person I think I expected to come back, like Judith Light, no, I didn't expect her to come back, but I wouldn't have been surprised. They're like, you know what? We're bringing Judith Light back. I was like, of course you are. Why wouldn't you if you had the opportunity? I, the last person I expected to come back was, was Max Greenfield as Ronnie. And I certainly didn't expect him to sort of blow me away in this manner. So. Yeah, good on him. Really, really good scene. Um, All right. So then we get Andrew. He's wearing pink today, and he tries to break into a yacht. This is a true thing that happened. Um, Guillermo Volpe is the name of the – well, we don't know about a lady sort of breaking in, going in after him and sort of trying to push open a door, and he just pushes it back. I mean, whatever that was. But, like, um, the owner of the boat, uh, his name is Guillermo Volpe, and he – like, the whole thing with the pita bread and all of that is is – based exactly on something that he found in his yacht um, that he suspects um, Andrew also stole a navigational book from him. Uh, so, it, you know, it seemed like Andrew was trying to get off um, out in a way. Um, and then we see Andrew watching Liz Cote on TV. This is also something that happened. The authorities asked Liz rather than um, Andrew's family to go on TV to make this plea for basically for Andrew to turn himself in because uh, she seemed, I think they said something like she, she would seem less under their control than Andrew's family would or something like that. And, uh, and so Liz Cote, you know, wrote this thing that the FBI then edited and she did go on ABC to sort of uh, give this play. I don't know. How did, how did this scene play for you? Bearing in mind Darren Chris's interpretation of like Liz Cote is not really knowing Andrew or caring about Andrew um, in the way that maybe we we had initially thought she did. It just made me wish they'd fleshed out their dynamic a little bit more. You know, like I think that Annalie Ashford is great in her scenes and, and um, you know, they do establish a rapport between them and a certain understanding. But um, the idea that Liz, who has been sort of distant from the story for a while, would have that much impact on Andrew at that point. I don't, I don't know. I didn't I didn't quite connect to that. 
But um, and I think maybe if they just had a, a scene or two more between the two of them, it would have helped. Yeah, and I think what I think is interesting is like Andrew, we see Andrew watching Marilyn Miglin. We see him watching Liz Cote. He like sees about his mom and stuff like that. We see him later watching the funeral. But um, the thing that really gets to him is sort of what happens next, which is uh, David Madsen's father um, on a show protesting his son's innocence. And this is what gets Andrew because he runs around the house uh, turning TVs off. He's haunted by the, I, it seemed to me that he's haunted by the idea that he's implicated David in this. Um, and I don't know, that was my interpretation. What did you think of it? Yeah, no, I thought so. And, you know, um, I think that in terms of people coming back and, you know, these echoes happening in this episode, I mean, uh, we have Liz, we have the Miglin and we have all, you know, various characters, Max Greenfield, um, I'm glad that they spent a little bit of time on on Madsen um, because that episode is so you know powerful. Um, I think that I don't know. I guess they don't, they only had an hour to do this. So, I, but I wish that they had gone into a little more detail about the the sort of arc, the narrative of of the police and the FBI thinking that Madsen was involved and then not. You know, because I think it's really important that uh, you know we know that he was sort of exonerated in in most people's opinion in in, in this. You know that he was not. Um, actually a part of it well i think it's kind of still contentious we actually got um you know maury north uh contacted us when we wrote about that episode because there's still like some conflicting ideas of how long david was on the road and and what his autopsy revealed and all of that and Mm -hmm. you know maureen in her books makes it very clear that she feels like the autopsy was done incorrectly and that's why david was implicated because the authorities thought he was on the road much longer um in her book, she talks about how eventually the authorities were like, we don't think Madsen was involved, but she says that was under pressure of um, the Madsen family lawyers and stuff like that. So I think there was still like some, especially at this time, still some question marks around it. Um, and so we don't really get to see David exonerated fully by the authorities, even though the show exonerates him, you know? So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then we get this, this whole thing with, is this the moment that you were talking about with um, Judith Light talking about her mother and the perfume, the father, or what, or is it the um, last thing? That it's the last thing, but this I like yeah, okay. I, I like this thing, this scene where um, she Marilyn is um, on another show and she tells this story about uh, her her parents and and you know she says something she says I imagine going back in time. Uh, and she's talking about imagining, you know, telling her father about what all she's accomplished. But I don't know. It just felt like a neat little reference almost to the shows, you know, the, the way that it has been. It has uh, up until now been going back in time uh, and in order to sort of better understand something. I don't know. Um, I mean, she's so good that I like the scene, but it did feel similar to the scene in her big episode when she, you know, you her, know, like final moment. Yeah. 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 yeah I. I it's funny though, because she tells this story. She talks about her father, um, you know, telling all these fabulous stories. So that sounds a lot, of course, like Modesto Kanonin. She talks about having to work and how bad her mother felt about that and how she would like to give her mother this perfume. And the way she tells this story, I was like, when Andrew then goes and picks up the phone, I would expect him to call his mother, but he calls Modesto. And that, um, is just, heartbreaking for the toxic sort of feedback loop that Andrew is still in 
with yeah. his terrible father, um, who he calls. Um, and once again, we have no evidence that, you know, Andrew actually called his father, but Modesto certainly was claiming, as we later see in this interview, claiming that he was in contact, constant contact with Andrew. And so we get this just really heartbreaking, I think, vulnerable scene where Andrew is weeping and, and sort of pleading for help for his father. And his father just assures him that he's going to come and get him. Um, and then, uh, and then creepily, once again, um, I believe I could be wrong, but I believe it's George Gershwin's "The Man I Love" is the piano piece that plays as Andrew sort of hopefully packs his bag and waits for his dad, which yeah. is an unquestionably romantic song, which is just really kind of ups- an upsetting, but <laughs> apropos perhaps, uh, m- music choice there. Um, and then we get, and then we get to see Andrew watch his father on TV, uh, still in Manila no intention of rescuing his son talking about selling the film rights. This is all true. Like this is all true. What Modesto is saying on TV, this is all things that the real Modesto Kanana did is try to like sell the film rights to his son's story when his son was still um, sort of on the loose and uh, just continuing to be a terrible human being who produced this other, you know, basically terrible human being. Uh, and then Andrew shoots the TV. Uh, what did you? What yeah. Did you I mean, you know, good, good to see John, John Briones back. He's great. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, Andrew realizing or, or us realizing, I don't know that, that like that both of them are just sort of people who leverage other people's pain and into, into, you know, something for themselves and, and, uh, realizing that there can be no bond between two people like that. Um, you know, it's a powerful thing. I think him shooting the TV was maybe a little on the nose. I don't know if that actually happened, but. Um, but yeah, you know, again, we're, we're, we're checking off the list of, of people to revisit. And I think that, um, you know, M- Modesto was certainly part of that. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it was well done. I, the only reason I think Andrew didn't shoot the TV is something that really struck me when rereading Maureen's chapters here was that when they found, cause he killed himself with Jeff Trail's gun. Yeah. And when they found Jeff Trail's gun, like every bullet that was missing from sort of the chamber was a bullet. Andrew used on a victim so they could account for every single bullet and I thought that was really sort of startling and poetic it's not like Andrew was just like firing the gun off willy-nilly he like every bullet he used he used to kill someone so um I don't believe he shot the tv or this other shot we're gonna see later um and then we and we and then we sort of start to dive into the Versace stuff that you talked about, which is really sort of heavily through um the end of the show this is an this is a really interesting the show's treatment of Antonio here, um, as played by Ricky Martin, uh, is a really interesting um, way in which it engages with the truth or with some contested truth, I think. Because we get some, like, really, I mean, from my perspective, heavy-handed um, treatment of Antonio as not not acknowledged as an important or loved uh, person in Versace's life because they're not married. Um, you know, he's not acknowledged the funeral. He's, um, he's left with nothing by the Versace family, all this sort of stuff. In actuality, according to Maureen's book, um, he was 
given a monthly stipend of $30,000 a month, which he decided to sort of cash out all at once, uh, which I don't know how you do the math on all at once, uh, a sort of for life stipend, but he got a great deal of money from them. Um, money is not the same as sort of emotional acknowledgement, but it's not like he was left destitute. Um, but then there are other, there are other reports that, he was cut out. So I don't really know the truth. I don't think he was treated maybe as harshly as this episode dictates. But then again, they only had a few minutes to sort of really crystallize um, what I'm sure was a, a probably a very painful um, realization um, of how little power sort of um, – a gay partner can have or ownership a gay partner can have over um, his loved one once that person's gone in at this time period, you know? Yeah. And here's this, you know, this, this stuff repeating itself or, or, or you know, continuing to happen, you know, that Andrew, um, the end of Andrew's story was by no means the end of this marginalization and this oppression and this pain, um, you know, and obviously there was the grief factor in it, but also the, the kind of erasure, you know, I think that's something we saw um, in a really great movie called A Fantastic Woman that came out this year about a trans woman in Chile when her partner dies, her, his family just like completely cuts her out. And that happened a lot. There's a documentary about it called Bridegroom about, you know, this was a, this was a common thing. And even somebody uh, at, at the stature of, of, of Versace and his partner, like, you know, Antonio, um, it can, you know, it, when you when you don't have actual you know legal ties in a way um your your claim over someone's life in a way uh is is, is tenuous absolutely um i think the part that really sort of i mean we'll get we'll get to the ending but the thinking of the part that really sort of struck me as a little too much and maybe i'm just being i don't know too idealistic or whatever was the way in which the um gosh i don't know it was a priest uh, a catholic figure uh sort of jerks his hand away from yeah. Antonio at the funeral. That just like that seemed a little too much, but like I mean, well, because we got easily... we we got the point already. You know, like I feel like right. we don't need right. to like. Okay, you know, yes, we get it. <laughs> like Catholics, right. like you know, bigotry, whatever. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, also, Maureen Maureen pointed out in her book that the Versace family paid a lot of money to have to get that funeral in the cathedral in Milan. Um, you know, because obviously Versace's out status uh, should sort of. Um, not should, but would have precluded sort of a, a Catholic funeral. Um, and here we also get a return to the religious, religious themes that you and I were sort of talking about how uh, they kind of sneak up on you in the in episode eight. And here in episode nine, we see Andrew sort of plaintively singing along to the Catholic hymn that's being sung um, at this funeral and his own... Uh, you know, religious roots yeah. sort of coming into this moment for him. Well, cause he's kind of singing it for himself, right? Like, cause maybe oh, he, wow. he knows that the end is nigh, I guess. I don't know, because like pretty much all of his options are extinguished at that point. And yeah, um, anyway, that's for himself. Yeah. Well, cause yeah. then we, then right after that, right. We get, um, Oh wait, no. Um, so is that, no, yeah. pretty soon after that we we get the end actually so right oh right yeah the caretaker comes in yeah mm -hmm. but um you know this episode's titled alone obviously like the person who was alone in this episode is andrew and and it's sort of a it's a challenge for the episode and for darren chris an acting challenge of like how most of this episode is just him watching tv mm -hmm. right watching the other characters on tv and reacting to it well and and, and uh, eating dog food 
and eating dog food and catching cockroaches. You know, you know, (laughs) great final days for Andrew Cunanan. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, there's, there's other people, obviously, like you could apply the title of a loan to Antonio if you wanted, uh, to Donatella if you wanted. Um, you know, there's certainly other people that it applies to, but uh, just in terms of, well, to, to, queer people you know like feeling alone or, queer or you, people, yeah, yeah you know the stuff that ronnie's talking about exactly um but the i think the the strongest acting challenge in this episode is for uh darren to keep our um attention as he's you know in this sort of passive mode yeah for a mm-hmm. lot of the episode you know yeah um and then we get we get basically the beginning of the end which is uh you know something that actually happened the care this man who was caretaking you know this houseboat went in to check on the houseboat uh fernando carriera is his name and uh in the episode like when he when when the actual fernando goes into the houseboat in real life he heard a shot that shot is andrew canadian killing himself the episode was like that won't be as interesting as Andrew really feeling like the tension all the way up to the end. So they have him just sort of fire a shot in the air, like a warning shot and then later kill himself. Um, But in real life, Andrew Cunanan killed himself like as soon as that man walked into the house. And um, I thought this might be uh, an interesting place to get one of the final sort of pieces of your conversation with Darren Chris, where he talks about why he thinks Andrew killed himself, what Andrew's mindset was when he pulled the trigger. There's a lot to discuss about why Andrew took his own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it goes back to what I was just talking about, about being in control of his narrative. Because I talked about, I talked to Tom Rob Smith about this and he blew my mind. It, it, when, early on, I was thinking, well, you know, he's got his back up against the wall. He's got nowhere to go. Like, it seems like the most sensible easy way out and then tom made the very good point i felt kind of like an imbecile i was like oh my god how did i not think of that he said well you know he would have been alive to to watch the funeral and he would have seen on television in the front row diana elton john trudy sting like basically his dream funeral right literally like living through this guy's death in his own life he would have seen that. He would have seen his face in every magazine and every newspaper. And if you say, oh, well, you know, all he wanted was fame and recognition. And he could have been Manson. I mean, he could have gone to trial. He could have been gone to prison. He could have been incarcerated and been the stuff of, you know, serial killer or legend for the rest of his life. Yeah. If he really wanted to and until, you know, the system took him or whatever. But um, he could have kept, he could have stretched this thing out. Yeah. And so one has to think there had to have been something in him. And I, I, you know, I, maybe the, the bleeding heart idealist in me likes to think that there, there had to have been some sense of, of regret and remorse that, that was, that was in there towards the end. But, um, something that I kind of, uh, came to, which again was doing to, which is connecting to this huge preamble is that if he had done that, if he had stretched this out, gone to present, gone to trial, he would no longer be in control of his own right. his, his own narrative. It's out of his hands. It becomes part of the media. And uh, if taking one's life, any anybody else's or or or, or their own, if that, if that if that is the ultimate arbitration of control, then mm-hmm. then that is sort of the final act of this is my story. Yeah. Um. And and he literally took it for yeah. himself. And now and look at us twenty years later 
talking about Here it with are. the same mystery. So he yeah. did kind of get what he wanted in this sort of twisted way. So yeah, in, in reality, there was this like huge media circus standoff, four four hour basically, uh, or five hour almost standoff with the media and the authorities and all of that uh, surrounding the houseboat when in fact Andrew was sort of dead inside um, the whole time. There's a lot of confusion over whether he was actually dead. It was it was a clusterfuck the way in which all of the uh, you know, police endeavors around this case were a clusterfuck, it seems like to me, uh, according to Maureen's book. Um, but in the fictionalized version in, in the show, we get Andrew, this, I mean, of all the people, I guess, once again, surprised to see young Edward Holdener back, uh, as young Andrew very briefly. Andrew sits next to this version of his younger self. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to be a little bit more moved by that moment because I, I can go in for that corny stuff, you know? Um, yeah. but I think, Maybe the moment just didn't linger quite long enough. Like it felt kind of quick. I, I thought there was going to be some, I don't know, dialogue. I don't, I don't know about dialogue, but like, yeah, just I don't know, just a moment to sit with it. You know, literally. I mean, yeah. they're sitting on the bed um, because there is something evocative about that. Like, and you know, we that and that kid Holdener has such like this sort of angelic presence. You know, that like to yeah. that it so offsets. Um, you know what he the. Cunian later became what Chris is doing and looking like in that scene. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I appreciate a, a sort of sad, sentimental, you know, detail like that. I just wanted a little bit more. Yeah, I usually, there was a trend for a while in TV that I used to call Ghost Dad, where like people, sure. dad, like Ghost Dads were showing up on all these shows, like The Newsroom, and I think Lost is the original Ghost Dad show. Um, but, um, and so that's that's what I thought when I saw him. I was like, oh, it's a ghost dad moment, uh, but like ghost of younger self moment. But yeah, I agree with you that they didn't quite, I think, take full advantage. But the – I also agree that just the physical juxtaposition between uh, promise and, uh, you know, the devastating conclusion of a person's life um, is striking in and of itself, but it could have gone a little deeper. Um and then we, and then Andrew kills himself. What do you think? I mean, he shot it. He did shoot himself in the mouth. But like, what do you think of that? The way in which this is shot, like the gun in his mouth, and I don't know. Well, me, what it evokes. There was this. Mo- there's a moment where, you know, because we're looking at him directly, and then it cuts to a shot where we're looking at him from in profile, and he turns, and it's he's looking into the camera, in you know, at us. But then we and then then we get another shot where it, 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 he's actually looking in a mirror. Um, but but I thought that moment where he looked at us or appeared to be was actually pretty effective in a way because uh, you know whether or not you agree with it, I, the show sort of indicting um, us society at large for um, allowing in a way things like this to happen or for or for people to grow up that way and to, to live that way um you know i think that's interesting and i think you know the uh, american is in the title we've talked about it before and I, so i think obviously there is a uh, a bigger idea at work um beyond just this this crime spree um and and i don't know that little moment sort of telegraphed it to me yeah yeah i really loved that um i was less enchanted by the return to the san francisco opera stage. same yeah yeah with with andrew and johnny versace this is like um I, what I did like is Andrew sort of just similar to the way that um, the Ronnie character did earlier, Andrew really distilling sort of what was going on with him and David Madsen 
when he's like, you know, what if you believed that you were, you know, um, I don't know, destined for, I forget, I'm going to paraphrase for a second before I actually quote, destined for greatness, um, but nobody ever saw it. And then what if the person, first person who truly believed you was the most incredible person you ever met? I believe he's talking about David there, not not Johnny Versace. And um, that really, that line really struck me. But um, but this stuff with, with Versace and him trying to kiss him and all of that, it just didn't work for me at, at all on any level. So what did you feel about that? Yeah, again, I just felt like, okay, we've seen this before. Like, we understand that they, you know, these two ideas of these, these two notions of these people were sort of tang- tangled together and intermingled, you know. I, I, I get that. And I think that what the show does next in, in juxtaposing, you know, where uh, Versace was laid to rest and where Cunanan was, uh, that yeah. accomplishes you know enough without without having to have this final um dialogue between the two of them because the whole show in a way or a lot of the show has been a dialogue not necessarily between andrew and versace but between andrew and his idea of a world that he wants that uh, that versace represents and i think that we've done that pretty thoroughly and we don't need this little cap because you know again we get it in in the next couple you know sort of montage scenes yeah, and then instead, you know, but but that I agree with you. What does work for me is this next thing with Marilyn Miglin, getting the news of Andrew's death, and then she talks about this fan mail she gets about Lee, and the line that for me was like the killer was she goes she's she's talking about these people who wrote in telling her things that Lee had done for them that she wasn't aware of that he helped this person who was in debt and helped this person and she just didn't know and she says why didn't he ever tell me yeah and like obviously she's talking about something else but the delivery of it the the packaging of it really worked for me uh what do you think yeah um yeah i think she did she say she says why and then she also says he never told me about any of it yeah and and just that the kind the rueful quality of that and 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 the the sort of the the depth that it implies in terms of you know someone realizing many people realizing um what what can happen when people live secret lives and you know whether it's about gay stuff or not but like uh and just realizing the tragedy of that and that there might come a time when you realize that you didn't know this person at all and now it's too late to to ask them about it and for them to tell you about it um so yeah i think that scene is really effective and i think it's the the best use of bringing judith light back to, you know i think that really sews up her storyline and a lot of the big you know the, the themes of the show um yeah, I really like that scene. Would you have preferred it if it had just been this scene for her in this episode? Um, I think it might have been more effective that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in a way. I mean, maybe have her a little bit at the beginning so it's not quite a jolt, you know, such a jolt to see her toward the end. But but yeah, I think it's, it encapsulates it so well uh, that we maybe didn't need the uh, the home shopping scene. And then we get to this. So, like, we end largely with the Versace's. Um as you say, there's this very clear juxtaposition between the um, pretty anonymous uh, mausoleum sort of place that Andrew's laid to rest that, uh, as I said, um, or Marilyn Cunanan used some of her like hard copy money to pay for um, this burial for Andrew um, versus this opulent sort of shrine that Johnny Versace gets, I think, up in Lake Cuomo or something like that. And um so that's the show sort of underlining its point. There's this other thing, though, that I'm really struggling with, um, which is how we end with Antonio. Um, 
I was, I had never, Maureen doesn't mention in her book anything about Antonio D'Amico and a suicide attempt. And so I was like, okay, well, but maybe it happened after Maureen wrote her book or something like that. So let me sort of try to do some Googling. Uh, always, you know, the most thorough of research, some Googling. And I, I spent some time looking for it and they really the only thing I could find about Antonio and a suicide attempt was an interview from Ryan Murphy where he said Antonio had suicide attempts. That's the only that's the only indication that I have of that. If they invented that, I have a bit of a problem with it. But then I also found this quote from Antonio that made me feel a little bit better um, because originally from The Guardian, but it was in this piece on Harper's Bazaar about sort of what happened to Antonio D'Amico. And he, he said... I had never been through a depression, never saw a therapist as I was advised to. Why did I need someone to tell someone else to tell someone else what had happened when I knew I was this way because Johnny's death had torn me in two. I was in a nightmare. I felt nothing and gave no importance to anything, the house, the money, because it felt false to have expectations of life. So, you know, that quote to mm-hmm. me feels like, okay, this is a person who could have had suicidal thoughts. Um, this is a person who could have attempted suicide. Uh, it's still just... It's just, I mean, he attempts suicide. We see he's a, he's a, um, a perfect encapsulation of the wreckage, right? That Andrew has caused. He's killed Gianni Versace, but he's also just destroyed this other man's life as well, right? But then it just, it ends with him not being dead, but still on the floor. And I, I don't know. It just, uh, it really hit a weird note for me. Um, did you have any similar reaction? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I understand that it was trying to sort of hit home these these ideas about the despair and the 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 the, the larger tragedy of 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 you know gay people being you know put into corners or whatever. But but yeah, I just again, I don't think we need it. I think it was gilding the lily a bit. And and like you said, if it didn't really happen, then why is it there? You know, I think that certain creative license that's taken by the show is is excusable and others has been a little bit more questionable and i think this is a really big one in, in terms of its questionable nature you know um and i just think it's, it was such a weird note to almost end the show on you know right yeah yeah like he's he's resting in this like anonymous maid's arms and i looking up at the ceiling and it just it, it just really didn't didn't sit for me. We also get this final scene with like that works a bit better for me with Donatella talking about how she didn't take Johnny Versace's uh, last phone call that she ignored the phone call because she thought he was micromanaging her show that she was working on. And so we, I mean, listen, I'm never going to say no to like Penelope Cruz just losing it on screen. I'm I, that's fine. Please serve that in every episode of television ever. That's fine for me. Um, but yeah, this Antonio thing just really like hit me the wrong way. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're Monday morning quarterbacking here, but like, I'm wondering if there could have been a way, you know, watching this episode and hopefully they would have had the same reaction we did to that, you know, great speech by Max Greenfield. Is there a way to move that, even though it maybe doesn't make sense chronologically to the end, like to end on Max Greenfield saying that, cause it, it is such an encapsulation of, of the series to end on him, like maybe talking about that cut over that juxtaposition of Andrew's anonymous uh, grave-ish, anonymous-ish grave and Versace's opulent, um, you know, resting place to really underline that. But that's, I mean, that's fanficking this episode and I shouldn't do that. Uh, But the last thing I want to say is like, that wasn't really uh, Andrew Cannon's final resting place because his final resting place is in this show. Like he had this sort of anonymous 
it's not a pop it's not like an unmarked grave it's a nice little mausoleum you know even though he's he's just not um the way it pans back you see how many other uh graves look exactly like that and uh, are unremarkable in any way and so it's just like you're not special is the final line of that of that uh, shot um but this show has served as a sort of uh, eulogy for Andrew Kinnanen and Johnny Versace. Um, and especially the way in which um, the penultimate episode creator destroyer really shows you where he came from and, and the damage that was inflicted on him. Um, you know, that this show serves as a sort of uh, more ornate final resting place for Andrew Kinnanen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, that's, that's really well put. And that's, that's true. And I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, um, but yeah, I, I think certainly we've spent a lot more time thinking about him, uh, and talking about him than we ever would have. Uh, so yeah, it's a, both a resurrection and another, a, a sort of final in, interment. Um, you know, I don't know. I, how do, how do you feel? <laughs> I feel, yeah. I mean, I think I feel conflicted as I have throughout in terms of, um, what this show does for Andrew Kinnanen in terms of like sympathy and all that. Um, but I don't feel conflicted about what this show ambitiously wanted to say about the gay experience in America at that time and, and more broadly and today. Um, I think, you know, though, though it might've um, taken a few missteps along the way, I think it, it's, I don't know. It feels like an important and rare amount of time dedicated to this particular theme. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I. Uh, sorry, can you just sorry? Can you ask that question again one more time? Sorry, I was just distracted by something. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, just um, that I. It might have taken some missteps along the way, but I think um, this show exists as a rare amount of time dedicated to exploring the condition of gayness in America in the 90s and also, you know, today. Um, I, I just think it's it's a it's a rare amount of time spent on that topic. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think for that and, and other things, I think that the show was certainly uh, worthy and, and, and had, has value. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I wish that I had seen maybe a little bit more public engagement with the show. Although I did see interesting anecdotally, um, th- like on, on Monday night of this week, like, there were some people on Twitter, not just gay people, but like, or you know, saying, "Oh, I'm I'm catching up on Versace. This episode's really good. This episode episode is good." So maybe that maybe the show will have a little bit of a longer tail, uh, and people will engage with it because, like you said, I mean, yeah, to spend nine hours dealing with a lot of uh, of gay top, you know, subject matter and 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 concerns and ideas, uh, you know, that's that's rare. Um, I, you know, maybe the next thing that that, that devotes that much time to those things will be a little bit lighter and maybe not serve to sort of in an odd way, a noble, uh, a, a person who murdered five people. But, um, but yeah, for, for that and other th- and, and a lot of great performances, um, I, I, I guess I'm glad this exists. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad it exists. Um, let us listen to Brad Simpson and Nina Jacobson talk about not only this show, but maybe uh, the future of the American crime story franchise. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. 
Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. are lucky enough to be joined in our final episode of Still Watching Versace. Uh, we are joined by Nina Jacobson and Brad Simpson of Color Force. They are the executive producers on American Crime Story, The Assassination of Johnny Versace. Brad and Nina, thank you so much for joining me. Um, thanks for having us. And thanks for um, dedicating all this time to the show. Well, yeah, thanks. And thanks for making the show. Thanks all around. Um, I wanted to to kick off by talking about some specifics of the finale itself uh, before we get into maybe some larger questions about this, this series and maybe even the American Crime Story franchise. But um, you guys had a unique challenge in this episode, I think, because there's so much we don't know about the final days of Andrew Kinnan. And so there's just a lot of uh, invention by by necessity for this. And so I was just wondering how, how you go about tackling something like that um, when you're dealing with such a, a sensitive subject matter? You know, this was our toughest episode to crack. I was talking to Tom Rob Smith about this last night. You know, we really had a roadmap of everything through episode eight. We knew we were telling it backwards and we knew episode eight would be an origin story for Andrew, the story of his childhood in, um, near San Diego and the story of his dad, Desta Kanan. But we always sort of just penciled in for nine. Oh, and then we'll do back to the end of the, the beginning with uh, Miami and the siege and the houseboat stuff. And we didn't actually interrogate that a lot until we got to the episode and we were faced with how do we tell this story that is in many ways um, a story about a man who's stranded by himself and also a story where we don't have all the information. We have pieces of information. And how do we string it together? It was a real challenge for Tom Rob Smith. And we also, you know, wanted to be able to do something that we felt like was emotionally true, even if we didn't know that it was literally true in every instance. So there were things that we knew. We knew that Andrew um, clearly hadn't intended to kill himself, that he hid and tried to run away. He didn't leave shooting Versace and then walk into a houseboat and kill himself. He tried to get away through a boat. They found that he'd been sitting on this boat and trying to escape to the harbor. Um, there were spottings of him around town. Some of them were probably fake spottings. There were enough to think that he was wandering. And he also had a whole bunch of magazines and newspapers. So it was clear that he'd been leaving this houseboat. Um, and really, it was almost the problem you have in the film Castaway, which is how do you tell a story about a man who is by himself with nobody else to talk to um, and also make you feel like it is close to what could be the truth. Watching the funeral, which happens, we assume that he watched Gianni Versace's funeral. He was watching TV there. Of course, he probably watched the funeral. I think also we were sort of fascinated by this notion that this man who craved fame and um, notoriety, that 
<clears throat> is only able to sort of revel in it very briefly before he is trapped by it. Um, and that trying to dramatize that journey of, you know, he clearly wanted um, in, because he had never done anything to earn fame, he took the shortcut toward infamy. Um, and I think Darren does actually a really great job in terms of performance of capturing that shift as the notoriety actually ends up isolating him um, and leaving him utterly alone. Um, and then when we having knowing that he had at least reportedly reached out to his father, we felt like that was a, an emotional place to go at the point at which all of his all other doors were closed to him. You you talk about I think one of the really fascinating challenges of of that dynamic is you know he, you've mentioned Castaway so I'm like okay instead of Wilson the volleyball you have basically a television like Andrew interacting with a television and like and and that's very on brand for Andrew that he would be sort of captivated by his own coverage that seems like very correct but you have this challenge of Darren Chris having to be in somewhat of a passive role i mean he's he's escape he gets on the boat he steals a car like he does these few active things but mostly he's sort of taking in and having to react oftentimes wordlessly because he is alone as the title says um what were some of the discussions you had around around that challenge for that depiction of andrew in this episode um you know i mean you hit the nail on the head which is that you know andrew's done murdering at this point, I mean, he doesn't, you know, when the, when the man who takes care of the houseboat arrives, he doesn't shoot him. Um, you know, Andrew's sort of done with his murderous rampage and he is passive. His attempts to escape are sort of facile and they don't go anywhere. And, you know, Tom is constantly asking, why didn't he take the trial? And he wanted this fame. He wanted this infamy, but you know, he, could have been arrested. He could have gone through the trial and become a notorious killer. He could have been Charlie Manson sitting in prison right now. He could have been, you know, OJ, but he ultimately chose suicide. Andrew's the, the final victim in this show. Um, and we talked about how to show a person who goes from exhilaration, which he is at the beginning. He's killed Versace's on a high to complete despair. And, you know, ultimately what we realized is it was just going to have to be you know, what they call in Hollywood execution dependent. We didn't have a lot of tricks to hang the episode on. Um, and so really what we're hoping is that you would have built up a set of emotions towards Andrew, which are complicated, but still there. And the people that he's lives he touched and by interacting through the TV and in other ways with his good friend, um, Lizzie or his dad, or watching the Versace funeral, that you would start to understand the despair that was building up inside him and be on a journey that was one towards, towards suicide. Um, but we talked about the Wilson thing a lot. We totally understand why they had to invent somebody in Castaway for them to talk to. You know, we always made jokes because all that was found with Andrew were a bunch of walnuts and copies of Vogue. And we talked about, well, should he be talking to the Vogue? We ultimately decided it would be the television. But I think it's a testament to Dan Menahan the director of this episode who also did house by the lake, which I know was an episode that, that you guys really liked um, that he was able to drive an episode that's purely based on emotion and performance. 
when we talked about the question of a person who wanted to be famous, the, that Brad raised the question of, well, why not go to a trial? Now you've, you're infamous now. And so, but the question of, is it shame, is it isolation, desperation? You know, we don't know. And we, we didn't want to project um, a, you know, kind of a full contrition and um, shame on him because we don't, we don't have the evidence for it. We don't know what his mindset was. And we didn't, we've always had to walk this line of wanting to understand him without ever glorifying him. Um, he is both the protagonist and the villain of the story. And so th- one of the things that we talked about a lot in trying to figure out this episode was, um, you know, how to understand him without taking a leap of saying that he kills himself out of shame and remorse because we didn't have the evidence for that. And we didn't want, we don't want to cut him a break on the one hand. And yet we also wanted to be able for an audience to, to be able to connect emotionally to the despair and isolation that finally results in him taking his life. Um, and so there was this sort of tension for us always between um, trying to work with what we knew and imagine what we didn't without ever erring on the side of giving him remorse that we never had any indication that he felt one way or the other. Yeah, the episode almost has a, you know, as you both kind of mentioned, a sort of this is your life quality where, you know, we get all these characters from other episodes coming back here. Um, and some in ways um, that seem like a very natural fit, like the call to Modesto, or of course, we would see Marianne and all that sort of stuff. And then there's, um, you know, Richard, the, the part of the episode that Richard and I responded to the most is actually, I think, one of the most surprising, which is the return of um, Max Greenfield's character, Ronnie, in this interrogation scene, um, where he just really encapsulates um, a lot of the themes of this season and also exactly what you're talking about, Nina, in terms of um, understanding for Andrew without, um, you know, canonizing Andrew or anything like that. And um, I was just wondering if you could talk specifically about the decision to include Ronnie, who, who you didn't necessarily need in this episode, but is so great. Well, it's funny because I, it's actually, we had a version of this scene in episode two that got cut. You know, there was a version where Ronnie was interrogated about Kunanan. You don't really know Kunanan at that point. It felt extra. The episode was running long. And when we got to this episode, you know, Ryan got the first draft, Ryan Murphy, and said, I really want somebody to, to talk about the themes of this show. And I want someone to talk about Andrew as a, as a gay man. You know, um, and it was a real struggle, actually, to, you know, to figure out who could deliver that message because the victims are, are dead. It didn't feel like the police would deliver that message. We actually tried a version where um, Annalie Ashford, um, plays Lizzie, who's great um, in the show, where, where she had a sort of monologue about it and, it. and it just didn't work. And as we were shooting, we sort of realized that Ronnie 
who was one of the characters people loved most in the early episodes, was the only person who could really talk about the themes of the show, who could talk about what it was like to grow up marginalized and gay throughout the 1980s and the 1990s, and also who had a perspective on Andrew that might be a little bit warmer than everybody else's. And we had a problem once we realized that Ronnie could do that, um, and only Ronnie, which is that Max Greenfeld was shooting uh, The New Girl, the final episode mm-hmm. of The New Girl, and he was back to his new girl look. He didn't have the Ronnie mustache. He couldn't shave his head. We actually went to the new girl and asked, wouldn't it be funny if in the final two episodes, uh, Max Greenfield just shaved his head? And it was just like a weird thing that happened. And as great as Liz and Meriwether and everybody is, I, they didn't quite go for that. And so we actually, Tom wrote that scene and we held it till January um, until the new girl was finished. We were also holding, doing the Penelope stuff for when she came back to to Los Angeles. And we shot that all in a day. He went and shaved his head and he said it was a nice purge of both new girl and Versace all in one day. Um, but it, it's a testament to Ryan Murphy that on a normal show, um, you know, you don't get to hold and wait and go back and do a very expensive day of additional shooting because you want something that's thematically resonant, important in the final episode. And I'm, I'm glad you both respond to it because, Um, It was something that wasn't in the original draft um, that we now see as essential to the show. Yeah, Richard literally texted me Max Greenfield in all caps as he was watching the episode. So, yeah, (laughs) he's great. And by the way, that's also the Ryan Murphy thing, which is I I would like to say that I'm a genius who can see the potential in everybody. I think Max is a great actor, but when when Ryan first brought up Max Greenfield for us for Ronnie, um, we didn't totally see it. Because, you know, as you know, as you do, you get an image trapped in your head. And I said, I, I don't know, he just doesn't vibe, you know, hustler at the end of his rope. And Max, to his credit, actually put himself on, on tape and he did a great job um, with it. And, and Ryan had just seen something inside him, having worked with him, that knew that he could bring this sort of pop to this role. Well, he is just, he's such a heartbreaking character. And, and I think he does. Um, I think the work that, that Tom did in trying to summarize some of the themes that we've explored through the show and the self-loathing and the shame and the, the loneliness, the isolation, um, the, the, the context of um, how few people were out at that time and how much um, sort of criminalization just for being gay, sort of um, inherent guilt. Um, for the AIDS epidemic, for um, all of the, the the context that the show explores, whether it's through Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or through, you know, the House by the Lake and the, you know, shame that kind of keeps uh, David from acting until he's finally able to. And uh, I think Max brings up such compassion um, and yet this kind of perverse humor to uh, the way he portrays Ronnie. And um, it was it was something that Ryan, we also felt like he's just such a, like a hale and hearty, good-looking guy, you know, and his ability to transform himself is something Ryan could anticipate that really did, was a great, um, it was just great insight on his part. Yeah, the physicality is is pretty incredible. That goes along with that performance. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about another actor who's not 
who appears in photo only in this episode, but um, as you know, we were quite taken and captivated by Cody Fern as David Madsen. And that's another bit of casting that like, you've got your starry, you know, your Penelope Cruises, your like Ricky Martins, your very starry actors. You've got your Ryan Murphy regulars. You've got your uh, theater staples like Judith Light. And then you've got Cody Fern who has a, a, a huge role to play, um, but is largely unknown to American audiences. And I was wondering how that, how that suggestion went over with you guys. Well, you know, Cody was one of those people where, um, what you hope will happen, which is that somebody just comes in and steals an audition and one audition and it's game over. Um, and, uh, that was what it was for Cody. He just came in and he actually read for us a couple of times, but, from his first audition, he just stole the role. Um, it was, uh, it wasn't even a hard decision because he just came in and broke your heart and kept you so he's, he's incredibly compelling. And we wanted to capture the sense of that. Um, Andrew took from the world, you know, these worthy individuals who had so much more to offer and Cody just nailed that from the beginning in a way that break is heartbreaking. Um, but he, he, he won the role old school, fair and square, just came in, um, put himself on tape originally and just was devastated everybody with his audition and then came and read again in person and it was game over. And thought he bungled the audition was, was sort of, you know, asked, kept asking to do more takes on this, in the audition that, that we were all in there in the room for. And he'd already, you know, he had us at hello. We were already after the first take. We'd been texting each other being like, Oh my God. Um, and I actually think as a producer, it's part of the fun of making TV and films. I mean, there's something great obviously about working with super established actors, but you're often just picking off a list then. Um, and the process of finding somebody is, pretty exhilarating. I mean, we had that experience on, on OJ with Sterling Brown, um, who, you know, was a known working actor and was on army wives, but hadn't really been given a platform to show his potential. And, you know, Nina and I were both in the room for that, where he transformed and Chris Darden. It was one of the best moments of my career. And I felt like that again, when Cody walked in, he's somebody just, you've never seen before and he can do such extraordinary things. Um, and, and literally grew up, in the middle of nowhere in Australia and has acted in one movie before this and somehow came and was able to be in scenes with Stan and Darren who have much more experience and bring such heartbreak and emotion and pathos. It's, it's really encapsulates to me part of the joy of producing. And also one of the things about this show that's different from other shows is that we reboot the cast almost every two episodes because Andrew's going on this cross country murder spree. So they're, some people remain consistent, but it was a real casting challenge for our casting directors, um, Courtney Bright, Nicole Daniels, because it was like they were casting a whole movie every two episodes. And they were given challenges like the one you're talking about, which is, oh, we're going to meet Andrew's um, second victim in the fourth episode. And you have to find an actor of extraordinary ability who can make us instantly connect and have incredible pathos. Um, and give him a three episode arc and then we kill him off and then we got to bring somebody new in. Um, and the whole show was like that actually, like in terms of locations, in terms of everything, it was, I think mo- we hadn't quite actualized what it meant to do a show where we're moving backwards in time and on the road. I think that, you know, Nina and I naively, when we got into TV, um, 
had only watched TV as fans and we hadn't analyzed it. So OJ had all these sets and all these crazy actors. And then we started watching stuff like The Good Wife and realizing that it's kind of the same actors in the same sets every day. And what we were setting out to do was make these sort of 10-hour movies. And instead of course correcting for the second season, it's like we doubled down. We had even more characters and even more territory to cover. So I'm, we're, we're not learning. Yeah, apparently we're not, we're not the that lessons right. of TV. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, would, I wanted to ask you about that, about the reverse chronology, which has been um, – one of the most sort of innovative aspects of the show and then one of sort of maybe the, the naughtier aspects of the show in terms of um, people having context for what they're watching or, or you know, finding their, their place in the story. Um, what about, I mean, you already talked about this a little bit, but what about committing to the reverse chronology? Uh, are you most glad that you did? And then what has have been some of the other challenges that you haven't mentioned yet? The reverse chronology was not originally, you know, something that Tom pitched as his intention for the show. When we first went to him and said, we want you to do this season and send him the book and asked him if he responded to it, which we, he did. Um, he didn't start right from the beginning to say the way we have to do this is backwards. It was something that developed you know, fairly early on in the process, but it wasn't an idea that was there from inception. Um, but what we found as we explored the story was that even when Brad, when, when, when Ryan first spoke to Brad and me and said, I definitely want to do Kinan and, and Versace as a season, we did not know very much about the story. All we knew were really what the headlines had been at the time. And we assumed that as sort of true crime aficionados, if that's all that we knew, that was certainly all that an audience knew. And, um, or less, obviously. And so ultimately the decision to begin with what was known and then try to understand it backwards, especially given that you have a character who's hard to understand, hard to access in Andrew, that rather than start from his origins and work your way through to the end, um, it just became a more, um, it just felt like a fresher and more interesting choice and something that actually was strongly encouraged um, by John Landgraf, who was fascinated by the idea of sort of this backwards trajectory for a character in terms of, un, you know, peeling off the layers of the onion with a kind of more forward trajectory of the pursuit of him. Um, and so uh, ultimately the pursuit ended up falling more and more to the background because it was so disparate. Um, the manhunt, it, mm -hmm. you know, part of what made it a failed manhunt was how diffuse it was. And there wasn't one character who was like the one person on the hunt for Andrew Cunanan who you could follow. But ultimately we, it became this we ended up embracing this notion of let's start with what people think they know and go backwards from there yeah. um, in order to take kind of this the iconic moment of the death on, um, of Versace on the stairs of his villa, which is the, the what people think they know, and find a way to reel them in and as audiences and and help them access these characters and understand the journey, but in this unexpected way. Well, I mean, I don't know. I know you guys have been debating how it works. I mean, I, 
my moment of crisis came when we were doing episode, when we got the script for episode three, which is um, a random killing, which is the death of Lee Miglin. Um, I was worried. We were starting to reverse chronology. and I was just worried the episode was too brutal. Um, you know, I think it's a standout episode in the season, but I was worried that the intensity, the violence, and um, that it was just, it was, we couldn't recover from it. And Andrew couldn't recover from it. So it actually made me anxious. Um, it ended up working, I think, um, and I do believe that last week's episode, episode eight, um, creator destroyer, it wouldn't have been as effective if it was the first episode if we started with like young Andrew. I think there's something about going back and trying to see, can I find some humanity in this person who's done horrible things that I hope makes the show stand out from other shows. Um, I completely agree. I mean, I think once you get to Creator Destroyer, it's um, it really that really is the payoff for the reverse chronology. And also, I mean, something that I was saying from the start is it felt like a way to to kind of. I mean, I've said this. I don't mean it as cynically as maybe it sounds, but a way to Trojan horse the story of David Madsen and Jeff Trail into this sort of glitzier assassination of Johnny Versace package. You know what I mean? Like people, some audiences. Uh, expected the Versace's to be heavily involved in every single episode and you get to the middle of the season. And um, it's a lot about these people that maybe, as you said, Nina, the people who just know the headline didn't know about Jeff Trail, David Madsen, all of that. Um, And I think that that works really well uh, for those of us who have like stuck with the season. I think there are some people maybe who have, who have checked out because it wasn't what they expected, but there is a lot of Versace in this, in this finale, in this last episode. Was that at all? You know, I don't know about the chronology of when you filmed everything or when you edit everything, but was the um, heavy promotion or, or, you know, the increased use of Versace in this episode, a response at all to that audience wish for more Versace in, in the season? We always wanted to go back to that moment that at the opera, that scene, and to sort of answer the question of what might have happened there. Obviously, we don't know that that ever happened. We have no evidence of that happening. We do know that they were in the same place at the same time and that um, they were Andrew seen together by some people. Yeah. And, and they were seen together by some people and that Andrew was fascinated by all things Versace, um, including his costume design work. Um, but the notion of coming back to that moment, which is clearly this obsession of, of Andrew's and being able to connect to the, both the, the hopefulness of Versace, the optimism of Versace and the shortcut taking nature and desperation of Andrew always felt like a place that we knew we wanted to go in that last episode. And so we had saved when we had had shot that scene, we'd always sort of had the notion that we would save the remainder of it um, until much later in the season. I mean, it's interesting to think through, you know, you know, we've obviously seen the people who we've seen a lot of tweets that were like, you know, oh, the assassination of Gianni Versace, this is actually really Andrew's story. And there's a lot of surprise. I think we were a little unprepared for it because we'd done the people versus OJ Simpson, which isn't really about OJ Simpson. Right. Um, and which, you know, certainly in the lead up to all the media focused on was OJ. And this is the story of OJ and why. You, and then once you got into the show, 
the surprise of the show was that OJ was a supporting character who often, you know, after the first two episodes, I mean, Cuba was great, but after the two, first two episodes, he just sort of sat in court until the final episode would have some scenes um, that were dramatic and important and good, but it was really about the lawyers. And so I don't, I don't think we were thinking that we would, um, you know, that we'll get people invested with the Versace story and, um, and then pull a switcheroo. I think that, you know, we were just surprised by the way that people sort of thought that the Versace's would be leads as opposed to supporting characters. Um, you know, but as I, you know, Tom Rob Smith will say that the Versace story is in every episode. It's there whether or not, um, you know, whether or not he's a character in that episode or she's in the episode. Um, because Andrew's obsession with Versace and what he means drives the story. And it, there were episodes where it made sense to have the Versace, but we were breaking episode four and episode three, a random killing in a house by the lake. It felt like if we were to break away from those murders and go to the world of Versace's, it would actually be somehow disrespectful to the victims. Um, because the stories we had about Versace after his death are, you know, interesting, but more melodramatic. They're, you know, family dramas. Um, and, you know, we also didn't want to do the thing where we started to unpack the Versace's and do something that was incredibly critical about them, because ultimately this is a show where we're trying to not demonize the victims. So it's interesting. We hadn't thought through the sort of possible reactions. We all felt this was the right amount of Versace in the series. And, and when we, when we shot the finale, the series hadn't aired yet. So there wasn't anything really to respond to. We knew we needed to penalty cruise back for, for that final scene. And I think she's great in that final scene in the, in the, in the final image. And in the same way that Judith light has come back or Max Greenfield, but it's not necessarily in response to any sort of clamoring for more Versace. And I, I honestly think that had we given people more Versace, they would have gotten tired of it. Um, and uh, as sort of exhausted by it. Um, but I know some people were also exhausted by Andrew, who's a tough character to live with through nine episodes. I mean, just make it the David Madsen story and then we'll all be, I'll be on board for it. No. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, the, the David Madsen thing is that I, I love seeing the bad episode, you know, that that's the challenge of telling a story backwards, which is let's introduce a character. Have you fall in love with them and murder him all by the end of the episode? Yeah. Um, it's a testament, I think, to Tom's writing in that episode that we're able to pull that out. It's really incredible. Um, you know, something, something you told me, Brad, about, um, I think it's the next episode, um, was you're, you're the one who tipped me off about the fact that a lot of these episodes were mood boarded off of certain films. Uh, and as you might've heard, uh, you inspired me to watch American Gigolo for the first time, which was a fun experience. Um, were there, what other movie inspirations might we have missed this season? Well, in this episode, um, this final episode, one thing that people, some people will cue into, but maybe others won't, is that all that jazz, Bob Fosse's autobiographical um, film from the 1970s starring Roy Schneider was a huge influence on it. We talked about it a lot. All that jazz is about a director who's headed towards a heart attack. And as he starts to go towards death, he has sort of these hallucinations and these fantasies and all the people in his life, these touched sort of come back and talk to talk to him. And it was visually and also narratively, it was a big reference and it was a reference in terms of, um, in terms of how we were shooting it and the sort of chorus of people who were showing up to, 
um, speak to Andrew through the TV and other ways um, as as he headed towards death. And also um, a film called Places in the Heart, which is really sounds random, um, had some influence mm-hmm. on on this episode at the end of Sally Field's Places in the Heart. Some of the dead characters come back and are in church together and share communion. And that was an inspiration for the final moment where Andrew goes into the houseboat bedroom and is about to kill himself and actually sees his younger self there and sits with him for a moment and a sort of moment of communion and a moment of sorrow for the boy that he, that he once was. Um, and that's just a small reference within the thing, but I'd say all that jazz was a big reference for this last episode. Um, you know, David Fincher was a big reference for episode three, which was a random killing, you know, Ryan, when he toned that said he wanted it to be, um, Fincher-esque and, and something that some people didn't pick up well in episode four, which is um, uh, the the road trip episode. It's a house by the lake. It was heavily inspired by this group of '90s road trip movies: um, Natural Born Killers, Selma and Louise. There were some indie movies. Uh, one called The Living End, which was about um, two HIV positive guys who go across the country committing murders. Um, Wild at Heart by David Lynch. For some reason, the '90s had this group of travelogue movies about characters going on demented road trips. And we actually watched all those and used them as a collective influence, especially Lynch for episode four, the house by the lake. I think we, we talked about that. Mm-hmm. Well, now everyone has their movie watching assignments. So watch those movies and then rewatch <laughs> the whole season. I'm glad you watched the, I'm glad you watched American gigolo though. There's a, um, it's a fun, um, you I know, that, 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 Convertible Mercedes is back in vogue, and so is Giorgio Moroder. So, <laughs> yeah, it was it was an, an impressive time capsule, and um, uh, now I just want to rewatch all that jazz, which I haven't seen in years. And of course, like you say it, when, every time you say it, Brad, I'm like, oh, of course, that movie. Yes, of course. <laughs> so uh, that's <laughs> well. If you really, if you if you really want to go into an evening despair after watching um, after watching our show, you can just top it off with all that jazz. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then I, well, I wanted to ask you guys, I don't know how much time you have, but I wanted to ask you about this, uh, postscript that comes at the end of the episode, uh, which I don't think was on any of the other episodes and, and certainly not on OJ, I believe, um, where you say the series is inspired by two events and investigative reports. Some events are combined or imagined for dramatic and interpretive purposes. Dialogue was imagined to be consistent with these events. Did you put that on there because of what we already talked about in terms of not knowing um, what had been going on with Andrew for those days, like that this episode was specifically required a lot of invention? I think it's actually just that you've been watching the press screeners, which didn't have have them. Oh, it's on so every episode. The actual real episodes. It's it's being shown on every episode. They're doing it on trust. I think that you know in this in this age of nonfiction TV, the sort of you know Legality. business affairs at Fox and other networks are wanting to just make it clear what you're watching. That we're not a docudrama. That this is not a documentary, um, and that you know uh, we haven't done anything that we feel is essentially untrue or um, dishonest, but, you know, there's a reality to creating um, a TV series or a movie that's based on true events, which is sometimes you have to imagine things. Sometimes you have to combine things for dramatic effect. And um, I think it's just making sure the viewers understand that um, as we continue on with the series. Was that something you had on OJ? No, no, it wasn't. Um, 
it, it wasn't on OJ. It wasn't even a conversation on OJ, even though, you know, there were obviously legal OJ was much on OJ. easier because everybody had written a book. We had so much more <laughs> right. source material to work with. I mean, you know, we had, you know, just a countless number of cross-referenced sources that you could glean, um, not to mention, a, a, a you know, a trial that people knew you know, incredibly well. And so it was much easier to know what we knew um, on OJ because you had the living attorneys who were our vocal, the focal point of the series on something like this, where we have uh, most of our protagonists are not alive anymore. Um, And so, and there are, there really is the only the one book to work from uh, we had to rely much more on kind of thematic intentions and best efforts because we didn't have nearly as much source material to work with. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and and thank you for reminding me of my press screener privilege. Um, so the- you got the pretty big, beautiful book, didn't you? Oh, I did. It's beautiful. Um, all right. Well, the last question I want to ask you guys, and thank you so much for this time is um, maybe any thoughts you're having now, having completed two seasons, any thoughts you're having about the future of the American crime story franchise? Um, Nina, let's, let's start with you. Um, well, I think for, for us, you know, the, the goal has always been to find material that um, we feel has a larger cultural context, um, that there is a proliferation of true crime material out there, but only some of it really sort of forces us to look at a mirror in which the who we say we are as Americans and who we actually are as Americans and what we say we believe and what we actually do are at odds. And that the reflection in that mirror is not always what one might want it to be. And so these, but it's a, it makes it harder to find stories, both who have characters where the dynamics between the characters are compelling and propulsive. And you want to keep coming back, see how those relationships may evolve or how those characters may evolve, but that it also has this larger cultural context uh, that hopefully people can argue about and discuss. And um, it, it's a high bar to reach because it's hard to find any stories that um, meet those demands, let alone ones that are true. Um, and so, you know, um, this, at, this season certainly allowed us to explore themes that we really felt passionate about exploring in terms of um, homophobia and, um, you know, the, the uh, sort of painful realities of life in the closet and the courage of coming out of the closet and what that meant for Versace and what a man like Versace meant to the culture as a whole. Um, as well as, you know, the lesser known stories. We had a lot to work with here. Um, it just is, a, it's an ongoing pursuit for us. You know, we currently have our, um, we are up to our neck in development of future seasons, but we always want to aim high. And um, that might not 
always it doesn't necessarily result in the fastest turnaround in the world, but we think it's still worth taking our time to try to get it right. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say much more than what Nina said, except that when you go into a true crime, I love true crime. When you go to a true crime bookstore or a section of a bookstore or Amazon or wherever people buy books now, you know, there's two types. There's the purient, just sort of page turnery, true crime that's disposable. And there's the books and pieces that are about something bigger and deeper and more disturbing about America. And, um, and we aim to, to be a home for the, for the latter. And it's tough. It's tough to find those things that resonate. I think some of the things we're also looking at now, we're doing these sort of big stories that people have known. I think that we're on the hunt right now for a story that people don't know, sort of making it a murderer or, you know, something that's an untold story um, for a future season. So um, everyone stay tuned. We appreciate everybody watching and supporting um, the franchise and we'll be more careful in how we title them in the future. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for, for talking with us and for giving us this season to chew through and indulging our podcast experiment and all of that. I really, I really do appreciate it. Thanks for watching well, it twice. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. I'm off to watch all that jazz. Uh, Brad, I expect you will want to get back on the road. And- Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, uh, hopefully I'll talk to you guys soon. This episode was engineered by Daniel Roth, produced by Dave Gonzalez with editorial support from Katie Rich. This is our final chapter of the Still Watching Versace series, but there is possibility that Richard and I might be back again talking about another TV show. You never know. So don't delete or unsubscribe this podcast from your feed. Keep it going. Um, in the meantime, of course, you can hear us talking um, on the podcast Little Gold Men, which is going to have a great episode this week talking about Oscar predictions for next year already. Oh my goodness. Um, and otherwise, Richard, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S, and I'm writing on VF.com. You can also find me on VF.com or on Twitter at Joe Wrote This, and hopefully you'll hear from us again soon. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. From P.